doesn't come across as crass to like ask for the deal or talk about what you want to do if the person you're talking to knows that you actually like them and so to the extent that this is possible actually like the people you're trying to do business with and it will come across and so when it's time to start talking business you've, you've built this rapport that the person doesn't they know they're not just being used yeah you met because it was work stuff you know that's how you were at a conference you're both like health tech folks or, or in the same ecosystem but you're asking for this because this is what your business needs it's good for their business and, and you're not using your relationship to get there it's just a, a part of the complete package part of the complete whole and so it's like to the extent you can make yourself vulnerable in developing those business relationships like i'm i'm never shy to talk about my actual life in work stuff um because that's a, that's a part of my complete picture you know and, and sharing that with the people that you spend most of your time with is a is a great way to build rapport and like when they tell you stuff about their life listen and, and again it's, it's a funny thing to say but to the extent you can actually like the people you're, you're trying to do deals with and it makes it much easier um, to lean on that relationship when it's time to start talking about work. Welcome to another Startup Health Fireside Chat. Uh, I'm Logan Plaster. I will be your uh, host and guide for the next hour. If you're new here, we do these calls every Tuesday, bringing in top industry voices uh, to share practical wisdom and really discuss what health startups need to do to move the needle on health moonshots. Sometimes these experts come from outside of the startup health family. And sometimes like this week, we have the pleasure of hearing directly from health transformers. So uh, today, you've, if you've been on the call for the last couple of minutes, you've sort of gotten the, the vibe that, that our guests today are really part of the startup health family, old friends. And so we are really pleased to have as guests today, Andre Zamilis and Reed Mullins, the co-founders of Doctor.com. Uh, Andre and Reed built Doctor.com from really the spark of an idea to a lucrative exit this past fall when they were bought by Press Ganey, uh, the global leader in healthcare ratings and uh, physician provider data. They're longtime members of the Startup Health family. I believe they joined in 2013. Uh, and so we are really pleased to have them on the fireside chat with us today. So welcome, gentlemen. Thank Thanks you, Logan. Awesome. Uh, thinking over this interview ahead of time, uh, it occurred to me that the ma a major theme here is, is the journey. So we'll talk about where you came from, some of the major decisions, uh, both good or not so great, <laughs> that, that got you to where you are now, uh, the lessons that you learned along the way, hopefully that journey and that hindsight can be helpful to some other founders on this call and those who watch it later. So with that in mind, I want to start at the beginning. I want to go way back. Uh, Andre, Reed, when did you first meet each other? Uh, it was sometime in the early 90s. I don't remember what year it was, but we were at summer camp <laughs> together, um, somewhere between like 10 and 11 years old. Uh, we were both going to like a, a very funny little hippie summer camp set in the woods in upstate New York. It was all based around uh, improv acting and live action role playing. So it's, uh, I think of it often because it was an opportunity to, to pretend and then make it so. Like that's what's amazing about improv is that you get a chance to pretend and make it so and those lessons have really carried on. Um, but we did do it in the woods. 
but so you yeah. became so you became friends at summer camp doing uh, LARPing and doing improv, and you stayed friends for for years. Now take us to the the birth mm -hmm. of Doctor.com. You came into possession of one of the great uh, domain names of healthcare, and that sparked what? Tell take us to that moment. Sure. When did it become a thing? Real quick, let me just fill in the intervening history there real quick. Oh, please. It's, kind of, it's kind of fun. So not only did we go to summer camp together, we both dropped out of high school when we were 16. We both used the same questionable source to uh, get, what, what do we have to do? We, we, got, to, we like got to take our GED test without doing the normal thing you're supposed to do first. And then we both went to the same college two years early uh Reed, you made it the whole two years there right i did not i made I it did. i did yeah i i made it a year and left and then we both ended up at the same school after that and this none of this was really orchestrated was it like we didn't like call each other up and plan it it just kind of happened that way so anyway just with the whole cute backdrop i wanted just to add that in <laughs> um to answer your question um so doctor.com as it existed uh you know sort of today or, or you know, leading up to the acquisition really was born out of two separate ventures. It was born out of a venture called Practice Brain, which Reed and I had created uh, a practice management and marketing software platform for small medical practices. This is, this is back in like 2011, 2012. And separately, while I was working on that with Reed and we got some initial revenue, some initial customers, I got connected to Gary Millen, who many folks here may have met over the years um, who's a very seasoned entrepreneur, incredible, incredible uh, partner and mentor to Reed and I. And uh, Gary had originally been one of the co-founders of Mail.com, which for those who are too young to know this, it was one of the first web mail companies, pre-Hotmail. And Mail.com's thesis was, if you're a doctor, you might want to have Jim at doctor.com as your email. If you're a lawyer, you might want Bill at lawyer.com. And they amassed thousands of premium domain names like doctor, lawyer, engineer, accountant.com, world.com, faq.com, usa.com. Dog lover was my favorite. Doglover.com. <laughs> and uh, anyway, they, they have this portfolio of domain assets that the, the two founders personally owned after mail.com sort of sold off in different pieces going through the, the dot-com wave in the 90s. And uh, Gary had doctor.com as one of the assets he wanted to develop and was excited about figuring out how to use physician data and, and create a destination for people to find and research doctors. So I started working on that with him. And at the same time was building out this platform that we're selling to medical practices with Reed. And it became clear early on that doing these two things separately didn't make a lot of sense and they'd be way better together. And that was sort of how it all formed. So uh, in 2012, I actually remember where I was when I had the phone call, we sort of negotiated to mash this all up into one thing that we called health platforms inc that was the corporate name behind all of it because we want a really generic corporate name because we we knew the business would take many twists and turns we're like with a name like health platforms inc this could be anything and uh you know we could get away with it was this Which just if we're thinking about like the, the journey and lessons maybe the journey and the lesson there is like we knew what industry we we're going to be in and we just kept all of our options open I was like, I think kind of an ongoing theme, trying to maintain like full optionality the whole time. Did you discuss that as a strategy or was that simply yeah. the way you, you rolled? Uh, I don't know if it was a discussion. I think it was a shared understanding 
as we just pointed out, that there's no way we would know at that early phase where we'd end up. And so, you know, we, we already had constraints with doctor.com as a domain name, right? Like it would be really weird if we like left healthcare entirely and like started an automotive company with that domain asset, right? It wouldn't make a lot of sense. So we knew we knew we were in healthcare and it involved people and doctors in some fashion. We wanted to keep the rest of our options open just because we, we, we knew just enough to know how clueless we were then. So uh, at that point, were you, did you start an office? Was this like an official business? Uh, when did it kind of become real for you? Uh, this new <laughs> business that, that is? I think it got real when, um, you know, I guess it was late. I want to say it was maybe like September, October of 2012. Reed and I did feel like we should probably not just be working from home. We should actually have a space that is a forcing function to get together in the same room uh, and, and, you know, start taking this seriously is what we did every day. So we, I remember this, we, we were um, buying seats at what at that point in time was the Blueprint Health co-working space in Soho. And this is like a dusty loft that had graffiti all over the walls. Uh, one of the windows broke and never got repaired. So as a garbage bag duct taped over the window for many years. And, um, you know, we, we were paying, I believe it was $400 per seat. And, and I remember when you got to four seats, you could rent a table instead of a seat. And the table was like $1,000. You got some economies of scale. I mean, it was 12, I mean, it was like 1200 bucks. And we may have negotiated it down further, which is one of the first lessons, always, always get a better deal than what you're first offered on anything. Doesn't matter who the vendor is. Doesn't matter if it's salesforce.com. Doesn't matter if it's, uh, you know, like an office supply store, always negotiate. So that you kind of got to train yourself to make your gut reaction when a vendor says a price, mm -hmm. regardless of the price and your expectation to go, it's a little higher than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> no matter what, no matter, no matter what. what. Um, Thinking of so, that time, uh, how long did it take till you own the whole table? <laughs> when do we, when do we get to the upgrade to the table raise? Probably like Couple like a month or two, right? Because we got Jorge as our first salesperson. We we yeah, it was like the end, end of that year. It must have been the full table by December or January. Now a lot of startups, you know, spend a long time with the two people at the rented desks stage. What were some of the decisions that you made, uh, or things that you didn't do at that phase that you feel like set you up for uh, the next success, the next growth? So. I I'll jump into this one first. I think the most important thing in those very early phases was deciding we needed a professional sales team. People that literally all they did all day was try to drive fresh revenue from fresh customers because it's because uh, it's grueling. The sales process is a grueling process. There's a reason why good salespeople make great money. Um, and it's because very few people can do it and do it well. And generally speaking, the, the character archetype of the successful professional salesperson is not exactly the same as the character archetype for the entrepreneur and the, the business operator. And so Andre and I, you know, we can, we can sell stuff. We close a lot of deals, but we knew very early that we needed professional sales folks um, to come in and just like do that grind all day, every day. Um, and that actually is what drove us to get the entire table next to our table raise a little bit of money, hire that first cohort of salespeople, make sure we had a professional leader of that bullpen. Um, and I, I really still credit a lot of our success to the early momentum that that decision gave us. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think an underinvestment 
in sales uh, is one of those things that is very perilous for a lot of early, early stage companies. I think the minute you start asking people to give you money for the value you're offering, it's a forcing function for so many other things, right? Look, it's not real until you've gotten someone to give you money for it. It's, it's just, it's like product fantasy and tell them, right? Mm -hmm. and, and it's very easy to drink your own Kool-Aid and get really excited and have a lot of vanity metrics and a lot of um, other things that you look at as indicated. Now, now, let me qualify this. If you are developing uh, a novel drug therapy or, you know, some, a medical device, like there's certain definitely categories uh, of, of, you know, within the, the health sphere where, it's going to be a long time before you're selling anything because you have regulatory approvals or hardware that needs to be built. So, so full, with full appreciation of that, once you have something that can be sold and Reed and I are software guys. So, so for us, that was pretty quick. Uh, there's so much to be learned from actually going out, having those customer conversations, typically getting rejected a ton. Uh, but at least if you ask why people say no, there's incredible value in that. Getting your first few rejections are worth more than a year of brainstorming with your co-founders. Mm -hmm. I saw a question come through about sales early on versus developers or development costs early on. Um, and, and in those very earliest days, we had uh, a team of product developers um, that we've been working with in Argentina on, on a few different ventures. And so we had a pretty lean but highly skilled dev team, like full stack unicorns who could just kind of do all the things we needed. And we made sure we were always building like just enough products to be saleable and trying not to over-engineer anything. Um, making sure that the market was telling us what to build next and sort of what direction to take it. I'm sure and, and a lot of, oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I was just, I see an interesting exchange. I, I pulled up the chats. So I see an interesting exchange here um, around sort of the, the natural tension, right, between product maturity and sales aggression, if you will. Uh, I would say we, we probably pushed the limits on selling ahead of product. Um, not all product and engineering teams will, will love when this happens, but in the early days where it's so easy to die or to just run out of money and get stuck, we always felt like, if, if, as long as we weren't being disingenuous with anybody that we talked to as, you know, who's a client, as long as we knew that, that in time, maybe just in the nick of time, we'd be able to, to back up what we sold or at least enough of it that, that they wouldn't be too mad at us. If it took us a little longer to fill in the rest of it, we would sell it because having that recurring revenue coming in sooner and compounding, uh, was integral to being able to scale engineering and actually eventually have the resources to build out awesome products. You know, we, we ran very lean for a long time. Um, you know, we, we, we got to our first 6 million of recurring revenue on 3 million of capital, which, you know, there's a lot of companies that have done way better than that. Probably some of you will crush that, but we were pretty proud of those numbers considering how many twists and turns we took. And a lot of that was because we sold far enough ahead that you know we, we would have the revenue coming in to invest in sort of backfilling that with product and client success and the other teams that would need to support those customers as they came on board. Let's talk just for a second about the practical wisdom um, behind 
hiring that sales force and leading that sales force because you didn't just start that way. Uh, you have been sales forward the whole time, big teams, lots of sales management, the structure that, that underpins that. And I think there's a lot of sort of hard earned wisdom uh, that you have that could be shared on this call. So, so what are some of the, the things that you've learned about leading large sales teams, hiring well in sales and what that looks like? I'm happy to feel, do you want to fill that? Want? Only sense I'm going to say, and then I'll come with color commentary is that it is unbelievably difficult. Maybe, maybe the hardest thing to do is assess sales talent as you're trying to bring them in the door. Um, and one of the reasons why it's so challenging is because great salespeople are unbelievably difficult to manage. That's what makes them great salespeople. Like they know how they want the conversation to end and they guide it that way. And it becomes very difficult to sort of do your normal managerial thing with an amazing salesperson. So I, I think I'll just put out there that like, this was very difficult. It was a place where I think we had the most failures, um, but equal numbers of successes. I'm not sure what else. Is. No, very, very well said. So a few things on this. I see lots of questions around where to find salespeople. So a lot, a lot of Zen learnings here. A lot of them, you know, hard learnings where we still bear the scars, right? So first, stage appropriate sales hiring is so critical. You do not want the shiny VP who comes from a Fortune 500 company as your first sales leader absolute disaster. I don't care if they were the number one salesperson at salesforce.com, right? Or Google or Oracle or whatever, you will fail if that is the person that you bring in day one. Um, where we had success with early salespeople was finding people who were individual contributors, who are really strong, who've been wanting to climb up that next rung on the ladder for a long time and just hadn't been given that chance, right? You get those people who who are just itching to have more responsibility, to have a shot at proving themselves and having a shot at leading other people, but hadn't actually been given that shot yet. And there's something magic about that because their skills are still sharp, right? They still have been hustling and carrying a bag and know how to get deals across the finish line, yep. but they also have that hunger and they're so grateful that you give them the opportunity to take that next step in their career and to own it, building out a team that number one, you can get creative on, uh, on comp and put a lot of it at risk because they, they know you're taking a chance on them. So you can, you can load into equity and load into variable comp. And we all, we were always a company that was, had you know, high reliance on variable compensation structures, which kept our, our predictable salary costs lower and then paid people really well who are star performers. That's a sidebar. And then when it comes to actually hiring sales reps, uh, you hire on character, not resume, right? Like you, it, it's foundational human traits and qualities in my experience that will define if a salesperson is successful or not far more than what they've done before. Domain expertise in sales is very transferable. Um, and so we would, I mean, some of my, these are sort of the, the fun sound bites, but like some of the things we do would be take someone to Starbucks and tell them, all right, get your coffee for free. Get your coffee for free. Or, all right, I want to call Verizon. Like, hey, what's your what's your uh, cable company or your cell phone provider? Oh, it's Verizon? Okay, I'll wait, call them on speakerphone, save $10 on your bill, right? Because these are the things, if someone looks at you deer in the headlights and is all spooked and gets all awkward when you make a request like that, 
they're going to choke when they have to call a hundred doctor's offices a day and get rejected. Right. Like that's not someone who cracks a smile and picks up the phone and, you know, hammers it out with a variety. And I could care less if they actually got the $10 or by the way, most people did, but it wasn't about like, if they got, you know, if they were successful or not, it's having the gumption to do it and the, to actually enjoy that. Right. One thing I'm hearing from you both is that while this is such a difficult side of the business, it's also something that you've probably found very rewarding when you do it well to find these great people and to manage them well. So uh, has that been the case? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's like very, very few things better than bringing in a salesperson and having them be successful because everyone wins. Like the, yeah. the victories are huge. My, uh, my grandfather's an engineer, but he would always just say, he just loves salespeople. Cause he'd be like, well, nobody works till somebody sells something. It's not what yeah. I do, but I don't get a chance to even get started until somebody sells a deal. So that, that kind of feeling I think has, has been pervasive the whole time. And I, and I saw a question like, what was some of the worst sales experiences and sales resources that we ever had? Um, I, I think for me, and it ties into what Andre was saying is like, if you, if you bring in sales leaders who your sales people don't respect, um, you just walk into danger. And bringing in a sales leader who never gets on the phone and closes deals is like kind of a recipe for disaster, especially in those early stages where they're like really hands-on with the bullpen of sellers that, that you have there. Um, so bringing in folks who are not afraid to jump on the phone, not afraid to roll up their sleeves and, and do it well, like that is crucial. And we've had really bad experiences when we went away from that. And to Andre's point, started looking at resume rather than looking at character and audacity. I want to shift gears uh, for a minute and kind of go back to your journey. You joined Startup Health back in 2013. I know that's, that's ancient history for some startups, uh, but you were very intentional in those early days of taking advantage of what Startup Health was offering and the community and, and getting engaged. Um, and since there's, you know, a lot of health transformers on the call, I wonder if you could just kind of talk about your philosophy about being a part of a entrepreneur community like this. Maybe Andre, sure. you could start. Absolutely. And first, and I promise Startup Health did not pay me to say this. Um, if we could go back in time and do it all over again, we would. So you guys have made the right choice. Like we've gotten to the finish line, had a good exit, been through the whole journey and can say categorically, Startup Health is integral to that, right? Um, Startup Health connected us with our Series A lead who then funded us to make an integral acquisition and basically put us on the path to the exit, right? So if we go back in time and, and you know, do it all over again, and even if it, we had to give up even more equity than we did to Startup Health, I would still do it. That's how, that's how important uh, the Startup Health partnership was to us. So I just want to put that out there. And again, no, one, no one's told me to say that. I don't, I don't get anything for saying that. Um, the reason why I say that, uh, is because I think it's, and you've probably heard this from Unity and Steve and others, you get out largely what you put in, but if you're willing to invest and be, uh, you know, be, be tenacious in the early days and, in leveraging startup health, not to solve your business problems for you, but to amplify your wins and to connect you where you might have a hard time being connected on your own. That's where we had fantastic success that. And then also sometimes just trusting the power of the community. Like we met, uh, like I said, our series, A lead spring mountain capital. I met John goo, who is the partner there who, who sort of teed it all up 
had a random startup help there that I almost didn't go to. Right. I was like, oh man, it's late. I think it was a cold. It was like November. Uh, I had a little long day. I'm like, ah, you know, this will be, it's always fun. It's great to see those guys, but like, I don't know, they need to go to another dinner. And I was like, you know what? Startup health is cool. Food looks good. I'll go sat across from this guy and we headed off and, you know, three months later they were wiring us our series day. Right. So it is, you get out what you put in. Um, I think where Startup Health has done an incredible job and huge props to Unity, who I know has been one of the masterminds behind this. Obviously, Logan, Sarah, you guys are, are a big part of this. It's the PR machine and the fantastic audience that Startup Health has built. I can't tell you how many inbounds we've received from prospective clients, from investors. Like when, we're, when we get something that's promoted in the Startup Health newsletter or Twitter or whatever, like anytime we had a press release anything, we would call these guys up and be like, hey, we have big news. How do we strategize around announcing it? We wouldn't just like forward an email. I'd be like, let's get on the phone. Let's talk about it. And sorry, you guys might get a lot of phone calls after this, but it would be like really working with Startup Health to leverage the distribution platform they have because people read that. I've had CEOs of Fortune 500 companies read in healthcare, like inbound from a Startup Health newsletter, right? CEOs of major hospitals. Um, you know, chief digital officers of top 10 pharma brands, right? Like, so anyway, that's a, a long answer, but uh, it, it really does come, like the people I've seen not do well with startup health are people who sit back and think that this is like a solution to their entrepreneurial challenges and it will, will sort of passively help make everything better. That I think it's really, you get out what you put in. But Reed, I don't know if you'd add anything to that. Yeah, one other angle I would I put on there, it's sort of like a, a different flavor of, of, of the same, but especially in the the in-person events, um, I have to give just like huge shout outs to Katya and, and Unity, who I would just, I would like scour the list of people that were going to be at a given event. And then I would show up ready to pitch any of them and then just grab Katya and Unity and be like, find these people and introduce me. I, I need your help. I need you to help find these people. And they were so gracious and so generous with their time and energy in in this room of like, what could have been hundreds of, of startup health transformers being forward and knowing what we wanted, uh, they were willing to help get us there. And so I, th I think again, another, another flavor what Andre is saying is like, if you, if you don't know where you're trying to go, it's really hard to get there. And I think that knowing what we wanted, um, startup health was able to, to help move us along the way. Once again, you were not paid to say any of these wonderful things. <laughs> I appreciate that, Andre and Reed. Uh, your experience is invaluable having, having been through this journey and really seeing the community at multiple stages, that, that early stage, uh, and then up till now, which kind of to keep tracking with your journey, we can talk about this acquisition a bit and kind of some of your lessons learned. You know, something we talk a lot about at Startup Health is understanding the mindset, not just of your team, but of potential partners. And I wonder how you went about thinking about the kind of company that you wanted to partner with that you'd be willing to be acquired by. Andre? No, really good question. So I would say, and, and Reed deserves the lion's share of the credit for this. So much of our success to the extent that we had success, we didn't always have success. Um, and a lot of where I, the moments where I felt like really a punch, punched above our weight as a company came from partnerships, right? It came from us finding ways as the little guy to somehow provide value 
to a juggernaut, right? One of our very first partnerships was with Google. It's like, well, how do, how do you, as a tiny crappy company operating out of a Soho loft with like eight people, actually have like Google write a blog post about, you know, do a case study on you as a healthcare, like a, a major healthcare company, right? Well, the way we did it is we looked at, you know, where is Google even newer than us in healthcare and trying to make an impact and how can that be interesting for, for us, right? And so we actually bought one of our first products was called the Review Hub, it's still sold to this day. And very simple concept is a Google Chromebook with a kiosk app where people would leave reviews in doctor's offices. And we figured out how to get those reviews showing up across the web. But we realized that, you know, at that time, Chromebooks were new for Google and Chrome was new and Google is trying to make an impact. It's trying to have this competitive operating system, this competitive hardware business. And Chrome had like next to zero healthcare footprint, but would talk about healthcare on their website. Like, you know, it's a major industry opportunity. So we, we were able to get into the Google Chrome, you know, once you bought a couple hundred Chromebooks, we were able to get into the Google Chrome team and basically say, hey, we're buying Chromebooks like crazy. We have this novel use case where they're going into doctor's offices and, you know, eventually even hospitals and patients are using them. And isn't, isn't that so cool? And they're like, yeah, this is awesome. This is exactly the kind of PR we want to get that like people are using Chrome in this creative way. And that became like a direct person we could at Google, we could pick up the phone and talk to. And for anyone who's ever tried to work with Google, one of the hardest things is having a human there that'll take your phone calls and actually talk to you about what you can do together. It's not just trying to sell you advertising, right? Um, so that was one of our early, you know, an early example. And I think for the rest of our time, uh, we would find ways to go to much larger companies. And it's almost always something you have a value. Maybe it's data. It's proprietary data you have. Maybe it's insight. Maybe it's a relationship you have with someone that they don't have a relationship with. Uh, maybe it's identifying a pain point or a gap in their offering that is used by patients or used by doctors or consumers or whatever. But if you can come and be really tenacious and persistent as Reed has always been in just getting through to the right people. And then if you're a likable person and you build rapport and you just have that real human connection with people, you'd be amazed. Like so much of it's just being liked. Like I think one of Reed's superpowers is he's just a likable person, right? And like when, when you'd be reaching out, talking to people, whether it's WebMD or HealthGrades or Google or uh, any number of companies, right? Like people just wanted to talk to Reed because he's a cool guy and they'd have great rapport and eventually talk would turn to business and eventually deals to get closed. It just takes a great deal of persistence. And Reed, this is your world, so I'm sure you can speak to it more eloquently than I can. One thing I would put in there is, is that the, the development of those partnerships, the development of those relationships, foundationally, those giant companies are used to folks coming to them for money, trying to sell them something, walking in the door with dollar signs in their eyes and thinking, oh, Google is going to make me rich right now. And the reality is that it's not usually like that. And especially in healthcare, it's very rarely like that. In healthcare, you have one of these weird markets where generally speaking, the, the folks who receive the value are not usually the folks that pay for it. Between the payers, the pharma, the providers, and the patients, it's all kind of convoluted web. So when you'd come to a big company, you like try to bring them value. Very often, I was trying to bring them something we had already built um, that I thought would be uh, powerful for their business, powerful for their PR, or give them new opportunities. Sometimes we were bringing them money 
Um, and once the partnership is developed, then you find ways that you can monetize it. We just kept saying like, if we, if we can make ourselves essential here, shame on us, we can't figure out how to make money on it. And yeah. so that, that was kind of always the, the push in some of these big partnerships. The other half of the question you asked Logan was around how, as we were out in the world, we tried to assess who would be a good partner for perhaps a merger or an acquisition. And here's where I'll sort of go shoot it back to Andre here and, and say that he spent a huge amount of time very skillfully navigating the world of investors, both strategic, pure capital, all of that. And, and it had his like finger on the pulse of how the ecosystem viewed us, um, what was valuable, what we were doing, uh, how to hone the pitch to, to really describe that value. And that I don't think there was a time in the whole history of the business that we weren't raising money of, of some variety in, in, in both a good and a bad. We see the, the face Andre has on now. It's like, it was constant. And it wasn't because we needed the money. We, I don't think we ever raised the money when we desperately needed it. We were just always in the market, always having the conversations, always learning about what our value was, always learning about what the market was looking for. And that that really guided and shaped the further conversations with organizations like Christine. Best time to raise is when you don't need it. It really sucks to raise it when you need it. So, you know, that manage your burn carefully and know your drop dead date and give yourself exactly double the time you think you're going to need to raise before you reach that, maybe even triple. I and mean, that, that's just what we've learned. But um, Unity made a really good point in the chat. I just wanted to echo here, which is that the sort of snowball effect of successful partnership right like i remember in the early days we had to beg and plead and ask 10 times and call text email whatever to get just get a meeting with a mid-level person somewhere like a health grades or webmd or whatever right and then they'd be like all right we're going to tolerate you for 30 minutes to hear what you have to say but every time we'd close a deal with one of those brands and every time, you know, we close a deal with someone else, whether it's Yellow Pages or Google or whoever, and we could sell, you know, we're doing this with Google, we're doing this Yellow Pages, we're doing this WebMD. It, there's eventually you hit a tipping point where we would call people, they take the call and be like, what's wrong with you guys? Why aren't you working with us? You guys, everybody else is working with us and you're like the only ones not. You realize what an inconvenience this is going to be for your audience that you're missing out on a convenience everybody else had. Like, and, and you can completely turn the tables where, my favorite is one of my favorite moments. I won't say who it was, I respect for them, but one of our final biz dev deals that we closed, I actually technically closed post acquisition. The person we did the deal with emailed me and she said, I, I'd really like it if you could put our logo on the doctor.com partners page. And mind you, this is a deal where they're paying us like half a million dollars a year and they're a phenomenal partner and they're awesome. And they have a much bigger, more respected brand than doctor.com. But they asked us, to put the logo on our partners page because that was the value of, of the network that we created of partners now again not all business will work this way right this is from the perspective of software business we were syndicating data we were we had to be partnership driven it was built into our value prop but it is a good thing for everybody to think about you know who who are those iconic brands uh in your vertical whatever it may be where you could come in and, and find just find some pain point that you can alleviate. And the larger companies, it's actually getting easier to do this because they all have innovation teams or, you know, these, these new groups that are basically scouts for people like you and startup health is incredible at getting access to those people. So, you know, 
I wanted to use this as a segue to you're you're talking about um, just some of the ways in which you assess these partnerships, and that kind of brings us to this this Press Ganey acquisition. And we haven't really talked about kind of what it was that brought you to the place where you knew this was right for you. And maybe we could hone in on some of the lessons that you learned over the last year. Um, how did you know that this would be a good partner for Doctor.com? It's, it's a great question. There's, there's a lot uh, to unpack there. I would say, and Reed mentioned this, the same way you're always fundraising, you should be talking to the people that you know could acquire you from day one and building relationships there. And that's that's not a hard thing to do, right? It's a really valuable exercise to sit down one day. And by the way, all your investors will ask you to do this before they invest anyway, so get a jump on it. To sit down and look at the entire ecosystem that surrounds you and think about who would buy me and why. Who, who, for whom out there, is there a one plus one equals three if what I'm doing is part of what they're doing, right? Where, where is there someone who's built this beautiful puzzle like the best acquisitions happen when someone's think about a, a puzzle of a masterpiece right it's like a puzzle of the mona lisa but the piece that the smile is missing and if you can be that piece that plugs in there that makes the whole thing fit together that's when people will pay a premium multiple people will get crazy to make you part of their business right so we would always trying to think about, all right, you know, who might buy us? And one of the other nice things about partnering with lots of larger organizations is often the, the, the most obvious acquirers are people you have a great partnership with. You get to know the teams, you get comfortable, you do some business together, you make some money together, you start to really understand where there can be uh, synergies and it can just happen very organically. So for us, the same way we were always talking to investors, we were always kind of in fundraising mode, we were always just taking meetings I and mean, I would take meetings with like a Japanese conglomerate that had some guy going city to city to just meet interesting healthcare tech. Because you know what? It's like a $15 billion company in Japan. If they happen to see something they loved here, that's an easy check to write. Now, that's an important point too, is you have to also think about the size and disposition of, of companies that could be acquirers as you go through this, right? If they've never acquired another company, you should understand why, may not be great to, to think about them as a, a prime acquirer. Uh, if it's a business that's been built on acquisition, and Prescott has acquired, I think, 17 companies in the past couple of years, that's really interesting. That's someone we'd be crazy into, to, you know, huge company, multi-billion dollar market cap, successful, long-standing business with a lot of the same customers that's made 17 acquisitions in the past number of years would be crazy not to want a meeting with them right and we met with 20 other companies that you know had, had grown by way of acquisition or that were just giants in this space um, but it is an important thing to think about and, and you have to think about it in relation to your fundraising as well right like our acquisition would have been a lot harder if we just closed the Series B a couple months before at a big stepped up valuation. And so something that I recommend to everybody is think about your exit trajectory in tandem with your fundraising trajectory. And there's moments of sort of local maximums that you can achieve there where if, if it's your first round and someone will buy you for $10 million, but you own 80% of your company, guess what? That could be way more lucrative than waiting to raise the hundred million to get bought for 300 million, right? So it's just like, 
there's to really think about those things as being related. And every time we were raising money, we were also talking to potential acquirers, right? So we were thinking, okay, is this the kind of company that would buy a company at our stage, at our level of maturity? And if so, when we talk to them, they should know we're raising money, right? And you almost, it's almost like having multiple horses in the race. When you're talking to potential acquirers, you let them know, hey, you know, we're not trying to sell the business. You're never trying to sell your business. The minute someone thinks you're trying to sell your business, cut your valuation in half. So we're not trying to sell the business. We're pursuing a fundraise, always happy to have strategic conversation, right? And that says a couple of things. One, you're successful and you have a path, you don't need them. But two, you're listening. You'll have a conversation, right? And, and we did that at each stage from C to A to what would have been a series B round. And it was truthful. If we hadn't been acquired, we would have done a big series B. So anyway, I, I, this is a topic I could ramble on for, for hours. We'll have to have, back, a, we'll have, to have a follow-up just on this topic. Um, Reed, I want to hear your, your thoughts. I do want to get to a couple questions in the chat and let people ask them directly. Um, so I'm going to call, we have more than I can call on, but I'm going to call on David Sarabia because he's got a couple of, of good ones in here. And uh, I'm not sure which one you want to ask, David. You asked one about kind of turning the corner from being personable to closing a deal, but also another one about M&A. So I'm going to let you pick what you think is most relevant at this moment. Hey guys, Wally picks, the one thing I would throw out there about, um, about Press Gaming was the, the market segment they operated in. Um, knowing that they were health system focused, um, that's where we wanted to be in the marketplace. Uh, so it, it's like the, the whole business trajectory for us was going from the individual private practice and scaling all the way up to the hospital and health system as a way to try to address the entire market. And so that to me was the most attractive part of, of working with them. But David, you got it. Love it. Uh, hey, Reed. Hey, Andre, good to see you guys again. Um, great to know that you guys are fellow high school dropouts. Love it. <laughs> so, um, my, I, yeah, I had a bunch of questions, but I think I think to keep it more relevant to this conversation, I you know what you just said, Andre, is super important. Uh, when I had my first exit, we we owned a lot of the company. It was a small exit, it was only about fifty million, but we owned a ton. Um, and that's something that I think is super important for founders to think about as as they start raising money, because capital is easy to raise. I mean, if you're if you have a good business, obviously, but then at the end of the day, you you might actually end up with way less. Um, but Really, I think, you know, my bigger question is it revolves around this thing that you mentioned, Reed, which is, you know, you, you cultivate these relationships over time. They become your friends almost. It's, it's, it becomes a friendly yeah. thing. You see them at every conference and you're having dinners and so on. But moving it past that threshold of just being this friendly relationship, we've had this with UHS specifically, and it's, it's been really tough to get past that, that actual uh, maybe maybe using them as kind of a, the champion or, or the gatekeeper for say to get it passed into an actual business develop or an actual business relationship. What's your best advice there? What have you seen works well other than just obviously asking? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you have to ask, right? You get like you, you close zero percent of the deals you don't ask for. It's, it's, you, ha you have to have that moment where it does become a little more forward, where there is a, a business goal to to being there. You know, it, it's funny. It's almost like uh, there's a book, it's a management book called Radical Candor about how you sort of like cultivate relationships and then use the trust that those relationships build to have radically candid conversations with your colleagues. Um, it doesn't come across as crass to like ask for the deal or talk about what you want to do. If the person you're talking to knows 
that you actually like them. And so to the extent that this is possible, actually like the people you're trying to do business with and it will come across. And so when it's time to start talking business, you've, you've built this rapport so that the person doesn't, they know they're not just being used. Yeah, you met because it was work stuff. You know, that's how you were at a conference. You're both like health tech folks or, or in the same ecosystem, but you're asking for this because this is what your business needs. It's good for their business. And, and you're not using your relationship to get there. It's just a, a part of the complete package, a part of the complete whole. And so it's like, to the extent you can like make yourself vulnerable in developing those business relationships. Like I'm, I'm never shy to talk about my actual life in work stuff um, because that's a, that's a part of my complete picture, you know, and, and sharing that with the people that you spend most of your time with is a, is a great way to build rapport. And like when they tell you stuff about their life, listen. And, and again, it's, it's a funny thing to say, but to the extent you can actually like the people you're, you're trying to do deals with, and it makes it much easier um, to lean on that relationship when it's time to start talking about work. Oh, I, I Reed, love that. <laughs> oh, sorry, and, and, and real quick, read that point about um, not being afraid to let the personal, you know, overlap with the professional. I think it's a profound one. I think everyone gets sick of playing business all day. A lot of people just wake up and play business all day and then like turn it off and go home, right? And you see this in like, quote unquote, corporate America. And like, no one likes doing that. They just think that's what you're supposed to do. And it's like so refreshing to people when you're just like a real human and you're just talking to them. And if you believe in what you're selling and what you're bringing to a partnership, it does, it shouldn't be an awkward ask because you're giving them something of that. Like have our partnerships. It's like, let us help you. Like they're going to benefit as much as we are. And same thing with clients. If you have a good product you believe in, they need it. You're doing them a favor selling it to them. And, and when you feel that level of conviction, that's when you can have these really convincing, very real conversations with people because it, it doesn't feel like this awkward moment when you're crossing the chasm to go from, from friendly to a commercial conversation. It's like, look, as someone who, who likes you, like I really think this is gonna work well. And sometimes what that means is not overselling. Like we've had clients we've sold less to than we could have because we weren't as confident in at that point in time in the full thing, right? We knew that this much of it would rock for them. But if we sold them everything and they would have bought it, the second half would have fallen flat and it wasn't the right time. And if you do that too soon and you blow up that relationship, you never get it back. If you sell the right amount that you know you can knock it out of the park, that makes the relationship twice as strong and then you can double down, triple down later, right? So. It's a delicate balance. Andre, what role did your friendship with Reed play in sort of setting that tone for your company and for your business relationships? I think more than anything, it's absolute trust, right? It's a familial level of trust where Reed and I have largely like really divided and conquered, if you will, or divided and, and, and uh, supported the business together. Like we, we, we would come together on deals where it, you needed two people, whether it was, you know, good cop, bad cop, or just, we, you know, there, there were different perspectives to represent, but, you know, I would try to keep Reed as far away from investor stuff as much as possible, not because he wouldn't be a great asset there, but because that's a, that's a, and every entrepreneur here who's raised money knows this, that's a whole black hole you can get sucked into, right? And similarly, you know, there was many a, a partnership deal that I'd find out closed when Reed 
emailed me the contract, right? So I think it, it what, and you don't have to be friends from age 11 to have that kind of trust. You just need to really make sure you're working with people that you profoundly uh, are compatible with on a human level. Um, and, and again, and I, I prioritize that visceral human connection above resumes, above track records and all things like all of my bad hires have been because I got attracted to shiny objects on a resume. Oh, they worked here. Oh, they went to whatever this school or they did this. or they had this big, you know, big name endorsed them. Like none of that matters if there isn't that, like, if, if your instincts, if there's 1%, here's some, some painful wisdom for everybody. If there's 1% of your feeling or feelings of people you trust about a hire, if there's 1% of any of you that says we shouldn't make this hire, don't do it. All of our best hires were un there was unanimous conviction and excitement. Every time even one person involved really had a bad feeling, it never worked. And that's largely because we had like, the, the people that were vetting these people were very like-minded and were, were, you know, we trusted their judgment and they would often see things that, you know, if one person that we trusted saw something we didn't see, it was a red, and they said, look, it's a red flag for me. Don't do it. Totally um, agree with that. Reed, how would you translate that to advice for founders thinking about their relationship with co-founders, considering a co-founder? Not everyone, like Andre said, has been friends since they were 11. Um, how do you make sure those, those bonds are strong? I mean, in a lot of ways, it's about the time that you put in together and making sure you have like every single conversation possible. You know, one of the one of the nice things about having known each other forever and having gone through the the, the way that we met, sort of bringing it back to sort of improv and, and role playing, is that we got a chance to see each other interact in like a million different ways. Many of which, because again, summer camp aren't even real. But you get a chance to see the really the full breadth of somebody, and and that when you have an opportunity to to have that sort of next level, next order, more difficult conversation about things that don't go well, um, have those conversations, like never turn away from the difficult stuff. It's the same thing in basically every relationship. You know, you need to, like, relationships are built while you're like slogging through it. When it's hard, and when you don't see eye to eye, that's when you really need to double down and spend more time together and, and really reinvest. Um, and, and I think that to the extent that like, you and your co-founder partner are obligated to both be each other's pep rally, um, but also be each other's, uh, I don't know, hesitate to say, like sort of therapist, call, calling someone in to have the conversations that they don't want to have. You, you have to do both. You have to do both because the reality is like the, there, there's, the, there's the two of you or the three of you or the four of you, whatever it is. And then there's the whole rest of your team. And then there's the whole rest of the world. And you need to be able to to bring a, a legitimate united front out into those broader circles of that of that diagram, and it has to be legitimate because people can totally smell when it's BS. They can they can they just know, and so you need to be like constantly putting in the energy and the time, um, having what is usually the hardest conversation to make sure that you're on the same page the whole time. Awesome. I can genuinely say I, I felt that from, from you from the first time I went to your office in 2017 and, and learned about uh, the business. So um, 
I just, I, we appreciate that. So we're getting towards the top of the hour here. One thing we always do on these fireside chats is give those people on the call a chance to kind of reflect back to you, their, their insights, what they heard uh, that was impactful as a way to kind of um, reinforce that for everyone else on the team. It really hit me uh, the way you talked about making sure that you're hiring stage appropriate salespeople, uh, Andre, this idea that uh, you don't want to bring in this big, you know, VP from some big name, uh, when what you really need is that that hungry initial person um, who's going to work on a very different type of compensation structure, kind of knowing where you're at um, and knowing knowing how to hire. And just the fact that you guys, you know, uh, focused on hiring a sales team so early on when when somebody else might have felt like they needed to get the, the product perfect or they just wouldn't have put in the the funds uh, early for that team, which I think is is fascinating. Appreciate that. Yeah, I, th I think selling tr or attempting to sell your product is the best thing you can do for building your product. You know what I mean? Like you learn so much about that. And then look, one, one final parting thought for me, because I say this a lot and I know, I know it sounds super cheesy, but for everybody here who's like just not sure where it's all going to go, freaking half the battle is just not dying. It's just not dying. There are so many moments where like we were down to two months of payroll or you know, just, it looked like the end was nigh for any number of reasons, or it wouldn't close around or like, like, like I'm telling you so much of it, just don't give up too soon. If you believe in what you're doing and you know, you have, you have a path to people paying you money at some point, like, and, and you really know, look, yeah, you really know it's not a lost cause. Like, you know, deep down you're onto something, just don't die. Just don't die long enough and good things will happen. Parting wisdom and often from you, that'll Reed. be like hard decisions that that give you that bandwidth you need to not die. So the the other half of that is like believe in yourself and do the hard stuff. Startup Health invests in health transformers from around the world who are committed to achieving audacious health moonshots. If you want to learn how you can join this community of entrepreneurs, or if you want to connect with one of our 330 companies, go to startuphealth.com. Thanks for listening to Startup Health Now. We'll be back next week.